Well, good morning. Um, got a question for you. Have you ever walked into a conversation or started having a conversation thinking, okay, I know exactly how this is going to play out. I'm prepared for this. No problem. And then had that conversation take a complete 180 and go a completely different direction. Well, I had that happen to me about a year ago. Um, I had been putting off this medical test, the one that you're supposed to have when you're 50. Some of you have done this. Um, and I put it off, um, and I finally had the courage to get it done. So I, I was hearing that, hey, the preparation is going to be worse than the test itself, and you're not going to remember anything. Um, you'll have peace of mind when you're all done. And... I went into it thinking I'm going to get this pat on the back from the doctor saying, hey, thanks for getting this done. You're in great health. And he said, we found something. So I'm going to be fine. But the conversation took a very different turn for me. Um, and maybe that was punishment for waiting until I was 54. I don't know. But um, all that to say, before you talk to Matt and ask him, what are you teaching these guys in PLI and why are they talking about medical tests like this? Um, I bring that up because it reminds me a lot about the book of Jude that we're going to be talking about the next few weeks here. Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, had one thing in mind, one conversation in mind, and something changed. Something compelled him to go a completely different direction. And the original thing that he had in mind was to celebrate something, just like I was going to celebrate. Hey, I'm healthy. But instead, Jude says, no, we've got to talk about something serious here, something that needs your attention here and now. So I've got another question for you. Um, how many people in here would say their favorite Bible verse is from the book of Jude? Anybody? Does anybody know where the book of Jude is in the Bible? Yeah. You're doing well if you do know that. It's the second to the last book of the Bible. But it's sometimes called the most neglected book of the Bible, Jude. It's just this tiny little slice, this sliver of 25 verses that we so often overlook. But if you believe that all of the Bible is the inspired word of God, which we do, it's important to look at the book of Jude. And if you believe in expository preaching, the way we do here at, at Redemption, where we preach through each book of the Bible over time, verse by verse, you'll be glad that we're looking at the book of Jude. I know I'm glad because I hadn't really studied it before this opportunity. And I learned a lot by going through it. So because we don't know a lot about it, let's just look at some background real quick. Jude was the brother of James, the guy who wrote the book of James, and they're both half-brothers to Jesus. So we'll come back to that, but think about that for a minute. Jude, who wrote this book, had a front row seat, even though these are, well, Jeff, you're here in the front row. You've got a front row seat to Tim this morning. That's what Jude had to Jesus himself when Jesus was on earth. And he had a front row seat to the, to the early church. We don't really know about the time frame on Jude. Um, we think it was somewhere around 65, 70, 80 AD, somewhere in there. We do know it was written during the time when Nero was the emperor in Rome. And Nero was a bad dude. He used to like to have Christians punished and persecuted just for the sport of it. So we know that the people that Jude was writing to are people who were persecuted. It was not easy to stand up for Jesus during this time. We do also know that Jude is a super short book. Like I said, 25 verses. So 
Each word, each verse had to be chosen carefully by Jude. So Sean will get into this next week and Ty the week after. But there's lots of creativity, lots of punch when it comes to the book of Jude. Um, Jude marshaled everything from talking about Cain and Abel to talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, talking about things that aren't even in the Bible, you know, drawing from other Jewish literature of the day. So he was going to do his darndest to make sure his message was heard. And the reason why is because he had a message that was urgent. And we'll get to that more later too. In these 25 verses, Jude communicated three main messages. We need to fight against ungodliness. We need to defend the faith and we need to protect our own heart. And today the main idea is fighting for truth also means standing up against wrong. So I'm going to cover the first four verses. So let's open our Bibles and read Jude 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, we know that Jude is the brother of James, half-brother to Jesus, And I knew this, but I think I had to be reminded. There were four brothers to Jesus who were mentioned in Matthew 13, 55. So there were several of them in the family. And by starting out saying, I'm the brother to James, it would just be like me saying, hey, I'm Tim. I'm husband to Sharon. I'm father to Catherine and her husband, Kurt, and Rachel and her husband, Luke, and grandfather to Joey, and so on. It was just his way of saying, this is a little bit about who I am. Um, We also know that that Jude didn't believe in Jesus. Um, He was a skeptic. He did not believe that his brother was the Messiah until after Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again. So that's, I think, why Jude says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Because he had gone from skeptic to servant. And think about the family life. I mean, we all have, maybe not all of us, some of us have older brothers and sisters who were always better than we were, always mom and dad's favorite. This is Tim's maybe taking license here, but it would, it would have been tough to have Jesus as your older brother. You know, it just would have been hard. You might have been jealous. You might have been confused. Maybe those are the kinds of things that Jude was dealing with. He didn't believe in Jesus as his savior until later in life. And then when he did, he went from skeptic to belief to servant. He wants his readers to know, I serve Jesus Christ as my Lord and master. Verse number one also tells us about Jude's audience. He says, I'm writing to you who are called you're beloved in God the Father, and you're kept. Now, these are not just demographic descriptions here. Like if I were to say, hey, you in the plaid shirt back there with a the beard, can you come up here and give me a hand with something? 
He's not saying no, plaid shirt and beard. He's saying, this is who you are. I want to remind you of your identity. This is who you are to your core. So let's talk about that. He said the first blank in your outline here, I want you to remember your identity. That's the first R. And he starts by saying, this is who you are in Christ. You are called as someone who believes in Jesus. You are called. And this is what's known as the effectual calling of God that opens someone's heart to freely respond to the gospel. Now, there's many places in the Bible that talk about this calling. One of the ones that I um, picked out was 2 Peter 1.3. It simply says, God calls us to his own glory and excellence. And this calling, what that means is he draws people to himself. God doesn't simply invite, but he draws us to him. And it's after we're called that we can then respond to him by putting our faith, putting our belief in Jesus Christ. It's the kind of calling that asks for a heart response. So these people that Jude is writing to, they were called. They were called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Second, he says, you're loved. He said, don't forget, you are loved. Now, most of us in here probably know John 3.16. God loves the world. But what I think he's talking about here is more similar to what we spoke on or what we heard about a few weeks ago when we were working our way through John 17. Remember the high priestly prayer where Jesus was praying specifically for those the Father had given him? Well, these people Jude is writing to, they were the ones Jesus was praying for. They were the ones that were specifically set aside who would believe in Jesus as their Savior. That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. They were loved. And lastly, they were kept. Jude is saying, you are in the care of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. You're protected. You're kept from harm. And you might be thinking, you know, I feel like I'm kept, I'm protected, but I still have harmful things happen in my life. I still have trials. I still have tribulations. So doesn't is this saying that as a believer of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to have trouble in my life? No, it's not saying that. It's saying that you're going to be preserved as you live in your current age, your present age, until the promises are fully fulfilled. We will have those promises completely fulfilled in our future. But until then, we're being protected. And I was thinking about this because I still think of protecting something more like, you know, taking, taking the vase that sits on our piano that we got for our wedding, even though it's not that expensive or valuable, it's valuable to us and valuable to my wife. If we were moving, Sharon would pack that in bubble wrap and she would put it in a box that was then taped up well. You know, is that what protected means? And I don't think it means that as much as a different picture that came to my mind a few weeks ago. When I was on a road trip and I was sitting in the third row, which 
any vehicle, if you've been in the third row, you're thinking, how did he fit in the third row? But I did. I had to take my turn back there as we were driving to and from Kentucky. But my grandson was in front of me in his car seat. He was protected by all those straps and all the padding and the airbags around him. He was protected by that. But when I was looking at him, his, his, um, his mom, my daughter, was driving at the time. And I thought, not only is Joey protected with his car seat around him, but he's powered by his mom who's driving this car with a powerful engine. I think that's the protection that he's talking about here. Yes, we're protected with some padding by living our lives in accordance to his will, but we're also powered, just like that engine, we're powered by the Holy Spirit as we go through life. That's what he's talking about as far as being kept, being protected as we live life in this imperfect world. Next, he says, I want you to know what you have in Christ. And that takes us to verse number two. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He says, may they be multiplied. So mercy, peace, and love must have already been there. Jude just says, I want you to have more of it. I want you to have more and more of it. God shows us mercy. God shows his believers mercy. Mercy is what moves God to seek relationship with people like me and you and you and you who don't deserve it. He wants relationship with us despite the fact that we disappoint him. We hurt him. We sin. We let him down. We hurt ourselves. It's that mercy that spares us from the punishment that we deserve because of who we are and instead gives us that unmerited gift um, of, of relationship with God. That's what mercy is. Next, he talks about peace. Um, back in Isaiah, Isaiah talks in the Old Testament about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. And because of their faith in Jesus, Jude's audience had a growing peace in their turbulent times of tribulation and persecution and feeling like they didn't belong. Remember, this was new to them. This was brand new to be a follower of this guy who just walked on earth just 20, 30 years before they did at most. And we have this same peace too. It says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think of the peace this way. We were once enemies with God. We were in in a fight with God, but we've been adopted out of that position and been placed into his family. That's what peace is. He's taken us out of that wandering chaos and given us this peace, this purposeful peace that comes in being in relationship with him. And then there's love. Do you ever feel like love, love? That's all we hear about, whether it be on the radio or in church or romance novels that you might be reading. I'm not looking at you, man, but, you know, I know. Um, um, Anyway, we like to hear about love. It feels good. And I think love is God's favorite because God is love. Scripture tells us that God is is love. And he wants us to know that love. He wants us to reflect that love to others around us. 
We also have to remember love is more than a feeling. It's an act. It's a commitment of our will to love others, even when we don't feel like it, to put them before ourselves. Jesus gave the commandment in John 13 where he says, I want you to love one another. How? As I have loved you. So the bar set pretty high. He wants us, he wanted them to love one another and wants us to do it more tomorrow than we did today. And why is Jude preparing them with this love, peace, mercy? Because he knows there's a battle taking place. There's a battle ahead of them. They are going to need mercy, peace, and love in order to fight the battle that Jude is going to ask them to fight. Which takes us to verse number three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, and I'll stop there, I'll take a time out. He was eager. What does eager mean to you? For me, the first thing I think of is every night about 6, 6.30, I'm eager to clean up the dinner dishes because only then will Sharon let me have my snack. Not if there's dirty dishes in the, in the sink. I have to clean them up first. Now, if you know her, you know she's not that, that militant, but a little bit she is. She's not here, so I can say that. Um, but he was eager. He was eager to, take, um, to, to give them one message. But then he changed directions. And why did he change directions? Back to your outline, he wanted them to realize the urgency. They needed to know there is something happening. Now, his first thought was to celebrate the gospel. His initial plan was to pat them on the back and and lock arms and say, hey, we're in this together and we are one body because we have one common faith, one common salvation in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jude was a skeptic not that long ago. They were probably skeptics not that long ago. There's a good chance they believed something different than what their parents believed. So it would have been valuable for, for Jude and his readers to celebrate their common bond in the gospel. Paul did this in the Corinthian church or with the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you, otherwise you would have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And this is it, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel that Jude is talking about, that he wanted to celebrate with them. And it's a good thing to celebrate what we have in common in the gospel. But there was something even more important that Jude needed to talk to them about. He wanted to prepare them to fight. So let's read verse three again, and this time I won't stop halfway through. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
So even though he wanted to celebrate, and that would have been good, he needed to contend for the gospel. He needed them to contend. Jude was redirected by the Holy Spirit because there was a threat happening. There was a threat against the truth of the gospel. And the threat is twofold. There was a threat against the body, the church that he was writing to, but there's also a threat against the individual that he wanted to talk to them about. So the battle would be both at a group level and at an individual level. And that's what he's preparing them for. Let's break it down. What exactly was happening here in this church? There was a stealthy operation underway. Um, Jude calls it, um, or rather, Jude didn't want them to be on guard. He didn't want them to concentrate harder. He didn't want them to look alive, which... Dad Tim used to say to his girls way too much, and they tease me about that to this day. They say, Dad, if you told us to look alive once, you said it a million times. Um, But Jude was saying, no, don't try harder. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to contend. Contend isn't a word that we use all that often. In the first service, I said, who uses contend? And a five-year-old raised her hand, and that was it. So I don't know if you use the word contend. I don't use the word contend that much. So I had to really think about that and do a little research. Contending means a fight, a struggle. It means an intense effort towards something. Um, It also includes an element of, of agonizing over something. Have you ever agonized over someone or something? Just think about that for a minute. I'm sure you have. That's one of those things that leaves a mark. When you agonize over something, it leaves you differently. And that's what Jude wanted them to do. Look at the situation differently and deeper than they normally do. It was also used often um, to describe athletic uh, competitions. Now, I know you might not know this about me because... Most of you guys have known me maybe five years max. That's about as long as we've been coming here. But I'm going to just admit to you, because if I don't, Brooke, I've known Brooke for 15 years, she would tell you, I am not an Olympic bodybuilder. But that's the word picture that comes to my mind when I think of contending. You've all seen it on the Olympics, or you've watched YouTube videos, where you see these guys that are like twice my size, And they go and they chalk up their hands and they stand right in front of the weights and they take a deep breath and they reach down and they take every bit of energy and every muscle in their body to get that weight to their shoulders. And you think, they don't have anything left. There's no way they can make it the rest of the way. But they contend with every muscle in their body, every brain cell to make sure they're mentally ready for the final push, the last couple seconds where they raise those weights above their head. That's what he's talking about here. I want you to contend. I want you to apply yourself in this situation like you never have before. Now, If you're not an Olympic weightlifter, like I'm not, um, there's a recent example where you would have to have been living in a cave if you didn't see people contending. 
And that was the election. What started out as a campaign where people were contending for their candidate, maybe putting a, a, a lawn sign in the front yard or sending a hundred bucks to their candidate or maybe even taking it that next level, being very outspoken on social media to contend. Well, that was turned up by a, a multiplier of a hundred on Tuesday when we had the election. And that's when the contending really started. It's like, who's going to win? Will my guy win? Will the other guy win because he cheated? All sorts of contending for something was going on um, this whole past week. If nothing else, remember this week as a definition of people contending for something. And as a side note, here's a freebie. I hadn't planned on this. But if your guy won, now your job is to pray for him. He's in office. Pray for him. He's one of our leaders. And continue to contend, contend for God's sovereignty because this didn't surprise God. And if your guy didn't win, if your guy lost, I have a specific assignment for you. Pray for the guy who won and contend for God's sovereignty. It's really one and the same. We should be praying for our leaders. We should be contending for the faith. We should be contending for the word of God and the truth that it provides and the sovereignty of God, a God who wasn't surprised by this. If you were here last week, you heard Greg say, there's us and then there's our leaders and then there's God. And that's exactly what we have to keep in mind going forward from this week. We have a job to contend for And it's just to contend for the sovereignty of God and God being in control in our world today. So what was the first step that Jude gave them in contending for the faith? What was Jude talking to them about? Well, he wanted them to recognize ungodliness. And that's the third blank in your outline. He wanted them to recognize ungodliness. Verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So these certain ungodly people who crept in unnoticed, they were ungodly apostates. They were people who once were thought as peers, you know, they, they looked like the rest of the church. They acted like the rest of the church. They thought like the rest of the church. But then they started to veer off. They were people who um, seemingly embraced the truth, but now they were starting to pervert the very foundation that that faith had been based on. The church and the truth were both under attack. And that's why Jude says, Put those boxing gloves on. It's time to fight. Now, perverting something is changing it, changing its fundamental definition. Taking one thing, turning it inside out, and representing it as something that it's not meant to be. That's what these ungodly people were doing. They were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. They were taking license to live according to their flesh. They were thinking, Jesus saved me. I'm good. 
I'm good with you, God. Now I'm going to go live the way I want to live. I've got this safety net, this safety bubble, whatever you want to call it around me. I can do things the way I want to do. Because remember, I made that decision to follow you. I'm in good shape. So the way we might say it today is, they behaved one way and they acted one way and thought one way in church on Sunday. But the other, I did the math on this and I forget, 127 hours of the week, something like that. They were someone very different. And that was the ideology that was invading the church. Now, Paul talked to the Romans about this very thing, about the idea of testing the limits of God's love for us. And in Romans 6, 1 through 4, it says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have we forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Grace doesn't give us the freedom to feed our human desires to test his love for us. It does give us a freedom, but the freedom that grace gives us is the freedom from sin's grip on us. That's what we're free from. And that's what Jesus' work on the cross has freed us from if we've put our trust in him. One of the commentaries that I read on Jude, the authors put it this way. Freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what I want to do, but the power to do what I should. Grace always directs us down this path, true grace, down the path of dependence, not the path of independence. It takes us on a journey of building a deeper relationship with Jesus, not down the path of seeing how close can we get to that line without crossing it. That's exactly what the, what the people who were attacking the church in Jude's day were doing. How close can I get to that line? And even if, even if I choose to, I'll cross it because God will forgive me for crossing it. Before you think, I would never be the one in the room tempted to pervert God's grace into license to sin more. That's not me. Well, there's another kind of perversion, one that I am very susceptible to. My wife and I were talking about this, and given the way we were raised and the churches that we were raised in, we have the ability to be the king and queen of, hey, you do a good job of following the rules, which makes you a better person club. That's also a perversion of God's grace. Um, The earlier quote that I um, mentioned, it goes on to say, pure, undiluted grace will make me fanatical, not about the rules, but about Christ and his moral perfection and beauty. So I like to think of it this way. I know this is my second car illustration, but if you're driving down a highway, the grace of God is the middle of the highway. And this ditch over here, that's the licentiousness that Jude was warning his readers about. 
And over here, that's the ditch of, I do a pretty good job of living a good life. That's that legalism that I know I'm um, susceptible to dipping my toe into. So again, the Bible talks about this too. In Galatians, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? There's two kinds of perversions of grace that the Bible talks about. Perverting the grace of God by either exercising freedom to live in the flesh or by being overly confident in living by the rules and obeying those rules. Either way, it's perverted. Faith alone is the gospel. Faith alone is what saves us. So these people had a conduct problem. They were acting according to their own desires. They had a conduct problem. But they also had this character problem. They denied Jesus' position as master and Lord. And both are serious. That is why Jude was sounding the alarm. And I think that's one reason why Jude is in the Bible. Because it is a scary thing to have either a conduct problem or a character problem. It should scare us when we think about what he's talking to the, to the church back then about. These people who had a character problem back then, they placed themselves in the middle of their own world. And they put themselves on the throne of their own heart. They no longer revered, or maybe they never did revere, the one true God as God. And because they didn't, it was easy to justify doing things their own way and going down that road. And they were corrupting the church. Now, if that were happening today, I would think, hey, we've got such a crackerjack care team. I know the guy out there right now. If they pulled into the parking lot and they jumped out of their car and they stormed the church, our care team would stop them. You know, we have things in place to protect us in here. But what Jude was talking about was a people who were covert. They were more ninja-like. And I think it's something that we should remember too. The enemy's tactic often says, if I can't break them from without, I'll break them from within. I'll get them from within, their own body. So the question is, what might be attacking us from within right now? You know, could it be politics, like I was mentioning earlier? Could it be masks versus no masks still as we see the COVID count tick up again? At the bottom, at the end of the day, it really all boils down to, you know, how do I think about Jesus and what he has done for me in relationship to what I think of myself. That's what's always the great dividing line. 
You know, do I accept his deity? Do I acknowledge him as the son of God? Do I believe and accept in the resurrection story? Have I made it personal to the point where I'm willing and, and responding to the call to deny myself and place Jesus on the throne of my heart? Tim Keller says, people who are immoral and people who are moral, both reject the gospel when they try to be their own savior. It boils down to who sits on the throne of my heart. Jude knew this. Jude knew this about these ungodly people. They had already drifted. They were already a danger to the body. But he also knew this about believers who were in danger of starting to drift. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe that's where I am today, in danger of starting to drift in danger of exchanging the truth for a lie and serving ourselves, minimizing the power of the cross. That's what will start us on that journey of wandering. Paul Tripp says, there's a natural human instinct to live for oneself and one's own pleasure. We have a built-in desire to serve something, but that something is ourselves. And that's why Jude says it's time to fight. It's time to put the glove, the boxing gloves on. The church is under attack. The people in the church are under attack. And why are they under attack? Because the gospel is under attack. And why is the gospel under attack? Because the gospel says Jesus is the one and only Savior that we need. And we don't like that. We would rather our own wisdom and our own goodness, and our own initiative, and our own political view, maybe, be our Savior. There's an urgency that Jude is talking about because there's a battle waging in our hearts. And there's only one antidote for that. It's a daily fix of the gospel. So we need to ask ourselves, Will we feed our own appetites and our own pride by dining at the buffet line of the Bible? I'll take a little bit of that. None of that. I don't, I don't like the looks of that. But I'll take a double helping of that, that stuff that comes out of the soft serve ice cream machine at the buffet. I'll take two of those. Is that how we live our faith walk? Or um, maybe we will say, hey, I'm pretty good at this on my own. In fact, I'm really good at this on my own. Either way, whether we're picking and choosing or we're making our truth, our foundation, we need the gospel. Now, Sean and Ty are going to talk about this more coming up, but there's a couple of ways that I think today we can apply the truth of what we've already covered in these first four verses of Jude. And the first is recognize there are ungodly people around us. I think we have to stop and let that sink in. I know naturally I try to be a nice guy. I'm not always, but I try to be a nice guy. I try to look on the good in everybody. So I have to remember there are ungodly people around me. There are people who are a threat 
to the faith. The question is, what am I going to do? And I'm, am I in close enough relationship with the Lord that I can recognize apostasy when I see it? And then the follow-up question is, do I love those people enough not to turn my backs on them, but to contend for the faith in their life? This goes back probably 20 years where I was part of a a group of people. Um, Actually, let me back up. I knew a guy. I worked with him, went to church with a guy who was having an affair with his wife. Um, He and this gal he was having the affair with were getting ready to leave their respective families and start a new life together. Well, I was part of a group of guys who said, we're not going to let you do that. We're not going to let you do that. So basically kidnapped the guy, took him to a local hotel for a night and spoke truth into his life and continued to speak truth into his life. That's contending for your faith. And I don't tell that, tell that story to pat myself on the back. I tell that story so you ask yourself the question, is there a situation that God's calling me into right now to contend for my faith, to help someone else contend for his or her own faith? Maybe they're on the verge of leaving something behind and going off down a path that looks much more appealing, but it's not because the Lord is not involved in it. So that's one question. And I should say, John and Diane are still happily married today. Praise God. Praise God for that. And number two, we need to check our own hearts. Are we on a path ourselves? Forget about John and Diane's of the world for a minute, but am I on a path to lose my first love, my first love in Jesus? Am I starting to pervert the grace of God by using it as a security blanket to cover my bad choices and to act and behave in a way that I know is not pleasing to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or are we building ourselves up and saying, I'm really good at this rule following. I'm really good at being in charge of my own life. I think I'm going to keep going down that path. So we need to contend for our own faith because our own hearts are under attack. So these are important questions that all of us need to ask on a regular basis. And they're the kinds of questions that um, cause us to celebrate communion on a regular basis. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, and if hopefully I've got it in my pocket here, um, if you didn't get one of these, make sure you go back to the corner. Carolyn can help you out. We're getting ready to observe communion now. And I think during our time this morning, it might be important to ask ourselves, do I understand that it is my job to contend for the faith? Observing communion will prepare us for contending for the faith. And the way it prepares us is it causes us to pause, sit at the feet of Jesus, and ask, God, where am I at with you? Am I grateful for the work that you have done to build relationship with me? 
Is there anything disrupting my relationship with you? And do I need to deal with that this morning? I want my faith to be fresh and solid. So ask yourselves those questions when we go to observe communion. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't have a faith to contend for, Tim. I don't really understand what you're talking about. If you're in that seat, I would say, come talk to me, come talk to Jeff, come talk to one of us after the service today. Because God is waiting with his arms wide open to give you a hug and to explain what it's all about. To have a faith that can make a lifelong and eternal difference for you. So again, we're getting ready to observe communion. Ask yourself, do I understand that I want to respond to the gospel with humility and submission, but I also want to have the fire to fight when you call on me to do that.